Have you ever had times in your life where you begin just looking at yourself and, and you are confronted with your mortality? You, you look at what's going on and you're confronted with maybe your weaknesses. Maybe you are confronted with areas of your life that need improvement. Maybe you're confronted and you begin to recognize, man, I am in such need of God's grace and mercy and, and forgiveness. In fact, a couple years ago, when I made the transition out of Madison House, I ran Madison House for, for a long time. And my job was to chase kids around. So I'm always running around chasing kids. It was great. Well, then I, I stopped working there and went to work at the church. And the problem was when I was at the church, I sat in an office for eight hours a day. So about three months later, three months after I made that transition, started working for the church, I go down to Madison House to play some soccer with some, some kids. And they're like, dude, dude, did you get a bee sting in your belly? And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, your belly, like, like it's swollen. Like, like what happened? Like literally three months, I had gained 10 pounds. Like, isn't it terrible? Like, that's just kind of, uh, and it was a, it was a stark reality for me that there, I had come to that point in life where no longer could I eat anything and it would just fall off, right? I had to begin to say, man, if I don't exercise, if I'm not active, those pounds are going to stick with me and, and show up. What is that? What about you? I mean, do you have that area of life that you begin to be faced with the reality of, of, of maybe, man, I'm, I'm not very good at this. Man, I've got some room for improvement. I need God's grace. Maybe for you, it's relationships. Maybe you can't put relationships together and you just fumble through them. You're like, man, it's like throwing a, a dart blindfolded. You can't get anything right. And maybe it's technology. Maybe like your kids buy you an iPhone. You're like, what do I do with this thing? How, why is it talking to me? Uh, maybe for you, maybe it's this. Maybe you go, like, like you got grandkids. And you're like, hey, I'm going to go for a hike with the grandkids. And you realize, like, I can't do this anymore. They've run up the mountain and you're still at the beginning part, the the beginning part of the trail. And you just becomes evident, like, like, man, something's happened. In fact, another time for me, again, I'll share my own uh, shame. Another time I went to the barber shop and I was like, hey, barber, could I get a different haircut? Could you cut my hair like this? And he goes, "Uh, Kevin, I don't think I can do that. And I was like, well, yeah, you can. I'm paying you to cut my hair. Paying you 13 bucks. And he goes, yeah, Kevin, the problem is you can't see your baldness in the back of your head. And I cannot cut your hair like that because it will be evident to everybody else. And I'm like, man, just the reality of like, this is where we are, right? It's just evident. You know, the book of Colossians we've been studying throughout this summer. And what Paul has been trying to instruct us on is he's been trying to instruct us on maturity. Uh, that, that this is how we become more mature Christians. This is how we grow up in Christ. Is not by doing all this religious activity, uh, not by obeying all the rules, not by having these religious experiences, but you grow in your maturity in Christ by holding on to Him, but by growing deeper in Him, by by going diving deeper into the gospel message. And this is what we've been wrestling with, is this is what it looks like for us to be mature Christians and a mature church. It's not that we are so busy with all of our religious activity, but that we would hold on to Christ and dive deeper in him. And we said, well, if you're doing that, here's the evidence of it. If you are maturing in Christ, here's the evidence. The evidence, the crazy thing is, it's not speaking in tongues. It's not what you do. The evidence of your maturity is how you love the people around you. This is what Paul said. This is what it looks like for us to be mature in Christ, is that we love the people around us. And then Paul even went so far as to define what love looks like. He gave these characteristics and said, listen, if you are mature in Christ, you're going to put on these things. He said, you're going to put on a compassionate heart. 
You're going to put on kindness. You're going to put on humility, meekness, uh, patience. You're going to have forbearance. You're going to have forgiveness for the people around you. And that is what it looks like to be a mature Christian, which is not necessarily the way our culture tries to define it. But what I find very interesting is, is these characteristics of what it looks like to be mature. They all are evident in community. Like you can't, you can't be compassionate without people around you, right? Like you can say, I'm compassionate, but until you actually show it, there's no proof that there's that compassion. So all of these characteristics, the way you show your maturity, all happens in community. And what's interesting is here, Paul has said, this is what maturity is. It's all these characteristics. And immediately after defining what maturity is and defining these characteristics, immediately he points to the three common relationships that most of us will find ourselves in. He points to the relationship between a husband and a wife. He points to the relationship between parents and children. And he points to the work relationships. And that perhaps, perhaps this is all part of God's design. That if you really want to show your maturity, it will be evident in your closest relationships, right? I think this is how things are supposed to work. I think this is the way that God intentionally design, designed things. I mean, last week, I want to thank Corey for, for speaking. Corey, I don't know if he's ever going to preach again because I had him teach on wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving their wives. I mean, what a, what a great job. But I love how Corey instructed us that husbands, this is the way that God designed. Husbands serve and they love their wife and encourage her as she submits to his loving care. This is what it looks like. This is God's design. This is the way husbands and wives are supposed to work. And then the next step is based on that strong relationship, you've got parents who work to cultivate uh, safety, security, and obedience in their kids as they lovingly impart the things of God onto their children. And then the third step is going to come to work. And Paul's going to instruct us next week where we work heartily. We aren't lazy. We work hard, but we work for, for God and not man. So here's the design. Now, again, this is where I can't talk for you, but I can talk for myself. Because when I begin looking at those close relationships, my marriage, my children, and my workplace, at least for me, in terms of godliness, in terms of where I need to grow, man, I continue to see my need for grace in all of those areas, right? That oftentimes it's our closest relationships that reveal the areas that we need grace. They reveal that we have a need for spiritual growth. Because you begin looking at those closest relationships and say, hey, does this define the way that I love my wife? Does this define the way that I'm raising my children? Does this define the way that I behave at work? Compassion, kindness, forgiveness, meekness, humility, all of these things. So when I look at my marriage, when I look at my children, when I look at my workplace, it's the reminder that I've got this struggle with godliness. And, and it can either leave me to a moment of despair, like there's no hope for me. I can't get, I can't do this. Or it leads me to the mercy and grace and forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. You have two choices. When you look at those closest relationships, you can just be in despair. Man, I, I'm terrible at this. I, oh, man, I give up. Or it can point you to the gospel of Jesus Christ, where there is grace and mercy and forgiveness, and God can redeem our brokenness. God can redeem these relationships. Now, let me tell you, as we start talking about kids and parents, my fear is, my fear is we'll hear this message about parents and how to raise your kids and, and kids how to be obedient. And my fear is we will sit in our chairs and think, I need to get better at this. 
I, I just got to improve. I got to try harder. I got to do better. But I, again, when you look at the context of Scripture, I don't think that's Paul's focus. He's not telling you, you need to go and try harder to be better at this. He's talking about maturity. He's talking about growth and how, how growth comes as we get deeper roots into the gospel. And so I don't think he's saying we need to try harder. I think he wants us to recognize our failures in our, in our marriage, with our children, and in our work, and again and again and again. Point us back to the grace of God. To say, if you want to improve these areas, it's not by trying harder, it's by believing better. It's coming back to that gospel message and allowing God to change you from the inside out. So it's not a matter of you trying harder, it's a matter of you going deeper with God and allowing God to redeem the broken parts inside of you. Again, uh, just as we start out, uh, Corey mentioned this last week, and I want to repeat this. You know, we, we look at what God says here. It says, children, obey your parents. And we look at what God said last week. Wives, submit to your husbands. And we look at those things and we think, man, that sounds controversial. That sounds archaic. That sounds domineering. Like, like there's no way in our modern culture that those things are, are, are true. Now, let me just say, man, there's such a greater responsibility put on the husbands than on the wives. When you look at what God calls husbands to do, it is much greater than, than God telling the wives to submit. And when you look at what God asks parents to do, it's much greater than God asking kids to obey. The greater responsibility always falls to the father and to the parents. And so, here we go. Kids, your responsibility or your, uh, for obedience or your lack thereof is, is there, and you're going to be responsible for that. But your parents have a greater responsibility to cultivate obedience, which is far more difficult. So, Colossians 3, verse 20, here's, here's what it says. It says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And I thought one of the things we could do is we could define what a child is, okay? Uh, in this text, where children obey your parents, a child is a noun. And a child would be defined as uh, if you live with your parents or you are dependent on them. Now, I know sometimes we get this idea, well, I'm this many years old. I'm a teenager. I'm free to do what I want. If you are dependent on your parents, if you are living with them, if they're paying your cell phone and your insurance and those other things, if you are dependent on your parents, this applies to you. That you are, are, are still expected to, to follow your parents' rules. Now, I was just thinking about you teenagers, and I was trying to give you the benefit of the doubt, right? So, again, I look at this word obey, and I pulled out my Greek dictionary for you. I was like, it's got to mean something different, right? It's got to mean something different. So I pulled out the Greek dictionary. That word obey, here's what it means. It means to listen and to do. Sorry, you're, you're not off the hook. Like, that is literally what it means. It means that children, you are to listen to your parents and do what they instruct you to do. The question is, well, why? Like, why do we have to do that? Why, why would God tell children to do this? It's not because God is oppressive. It's not because God is giving parents the role of being dictators of the house. It's because children, when you're young, you're just dumb. And you just don't know it. It's just, you're dumb and you don't know it. I mean, this is where, like, like this is what happens. Parents, we love our kids, so we buy them all the toys. Like their room is filled with toys. They've got everything. And what do they want to do? They still want to go play with a bottle of bleach. It's like, come on, kids. They're dumb and they don't. No, this is just what happens. Kids think they know everything and they don't. And that becomes 
dangerous for the children. And so obedience, uh, when, when God instructs children to be obedient, it's for their safety. It's for their protection. It's for their flourishing. It's for their benefit. It's not to be a dictator. It's because parents are looking out for the best interests of the child. Again, this is where kids, as they start growing older, obedience begins to change a little bit. Where no longer is it, uh, I'm going to do this to protect you. Now the, 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 your, your training in obedience begins to teach wisdom. Teach your teenagers how to make right decisions. So this is where, as parents, your rules and guidelines begin to change. Where you can begin to teach your kids to think rightly and wisely. And that's where I had to have this valuable lesson from my mom about thinking wisely. Where just because my car goes 75 miles an hour does not mean I should drive down some of you at 70 miles an hour. Like that's not wise or right thinking. And so there's this process where parents as kids get older, the process is to teach them how to think rightly, how to apply wisdom to their situation. Again, kids, I'm not trying to insult you by saying you're, you're young and, and dumb and you don't know it. It's just how life works. That as you grow in age, as you grow in maturity, you begin to realize, man, I'm not young enough to know everything. This is what happens. This is a sign of maturities. You realize I'm not young enough to know everything. You begin to have a little bit of humility. And, And Paul, so he says this. He says, children, obey your parents. And he includes this phrase, in everything. And this is, a, again, I, I want to highlight this because kids, you are not the judge on what you are to obey and what you don't have to obey. You're not the judge on what's fair and what's not fair. You're not the judge on what you have to listen to and what you can disagree with. Now, of course, there is an exception to this. Acts 5.29 says we must obey God rather than men. But aside from that stipulation, men, children, kids, you don't get to choose what you listen to. The instruction that God gave is that you would be obedient to your parents in all things, in everything. How many parents say amen right now? That's good preaching, huh? (laughs) Let Let me throw this caveat in for the children, okay? Kids, I don't think it's wrong for you to respect, respectfully, keyword respectfully, ask for clarification or ask for reasoning. Parents say this is what the rule is. I don't think it's wrong for you to ask for clarification, but that means doing it once, not 16 times. It means once. And when your parents say this is what it is, then you say, all right, I I am going to obey. Because there's going to be a time that kids aren't going to understand why parents make a decision. They don't have the wisdom, they don't have the ability to to look down that long term and see why they do that. And this is the same true of us. Same, same, the same thing is true of us with God, right? That we don't always understand why God does the things he does. And in that moment, God instructs us to, to listen to him, to trust him, and to obey him, even in those tough times when we don't get what God is doing. That is our instruction. Now, again, when we start talking obedience, uh, I think one of the things we have to include in this conversation is discipline. Discipline is a part of that process with children and obedience. It's a necessary part of raising kids. Hebrews 12 actually says this. Hebrews 12 says, The Lord disciplines those who he loves. If God doesn't discipline you, it means you are illegitimate and you are not his real children at all. And so that's where kids, you need to hear this today, that as hard as it can be, discipline is an evidence of of your parents' love for you. 
Discipline is your parents wanting what is best for you, wanting you to be the best that you can be. And so they put this discipline in so to, to protect you and to teach you, to train you to live rightly and to live wisely. Now, again, let me just, kids, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Let me be honest. Parents aren't always going to be right, right? They're not always going to, there's going to be times your parents are too tight. There's going to be times your parents are too loose. There's going to be your times when your parents are, are insensitive. Sometimes your parents might even be unreasonable. Sometimes your parents might be overly strict. And you might be a teenager, but parents begin to teach you or treat you like a five-year-old. That is what I'm just saying. It happens. And I'm not saying that parents are always right, but I'm saying your duty before God and for your eventual delight is that you'd be obedient to imperfect parents. That you would always honor them. And if you're dependent on your parents, that you would obey the rules that they have set for you. Even if they're a little bit crazy. Even if they have a few screws loose. You still have this responsibility before God. In fact, there's an example of this. I love this story. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus is 12 years old and he's separated from his mom and dad. He goes to the temple and Jesus is teaching the pastors and the preachers and the teachers of God's word. He's teaching them. Here's Jesus, a 12-year-old boy. And his parents come and find them. And you've got Mary, his mother, and Joseph, his stepdad. Again, Mary and Joseph, it's crazy because they're his parents, but he created them. Isn't that a weird paradigm to think about? Like, here's Jesus. He's got these parents that, in reality, he created them. Okay? And here's what Luke 2 says, is that when his parents found them, that he submitted himself to them. Jesus I mean, he's the son of God. He's God in the flesh, Emmanuel. And he chose, even though he had imperfect parents, he chose to submit himself to them and obey what they commanded him to do. And again, <coughs> putting myself in a kid's shoes. Well, why? Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to obey my parents in everything? And, and, and this is where Paul gives us the answer. Paul says, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Ephesians 6 says it this way, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Paul's saying this is God's design. This is God's design for your benefit, that your life would go well, that you would live longer because you are under the, this God-given protection. You are under the authority that God has given you for your good, for your benefit, even if they are a little bit crazy. And the flip side of this, if you neglect this command to obey your parents in everything, again, Paul says, if you obey your parents in everything, it will go well for you. On the flip side, if you choose to disobey your parents, it's going to go bad for you. Maybe not now, but surely later on in the future, it will go bad for you. <coughs> so that's children. Now we're going to spend more time talking about parents because I think that's where the greater weight is. And here's, here's what Paul says here. He says, fathers, verse 21 of Colossians 3, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And I actually like the way that the NASB says, it says, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Now, again, we see this word fathers, and I want to clarify that this text is, is geared towards both parents. Both parents are responsible, are responsible for how they parent their kids. But biblically, biblically, the, the, the father doesn't have the sole responsibility, but the father will always have the leading responsibility in how a, a couple raises their children. 
Fathers always are going to have this leading responsibility. The ultimate direction for the family falls on the father. And so here's what this looks like. Let's just say, for example, Sam and I, we start screwing our kids up, making horrible, terrible decisions, horrible parents. And if, and if Jesus were to come down to our house and knock on our door and Samantha answers the door, Jesus is going to say, good morning, Samantha. Now, where's Kevin? He's going to be, does that put a little bit of fear in you? It does me, like my knees are knocking. Goodness gracious, that weight. He says, parents, do not provoke your children lest they lose heart. And let me just throw this out, kids. If you're in here, you are not the Holy Spirit, okay? So let me just say, you are not the Holy Spirit. If you quote this to your parents, don't provoke me. The Bible says no. Let me tell you what, they haven't provoked you yet. And I give them every permission to do whatever they can to provoke you in that moment. You are not the Holy Spirit. This is not the verse you quote to mom and dad, okay? Parents, you have that freedom to, to use as you wish. When Paul says, do not provoke your children, he doesn't mean don't make your children angry. Because undoubtedly, children are going to be angry with you at times. When you put boundaries, when you put discipline in place, children undoubtedly at some point are going to be angry with you. And what Paul's trying to say is don't provoke your children. Don't try to make them angry. Let me, let me give you a little bit of, try and give you an imperfect example of what that looks like. We've got, we've got a couple of friends, and they have the same type of dog, the same breed of dog, right? And I've got uh, one of our group of friends, like they've done a great job with this dog. They've trained the dog to sit, to, to stay, to come. They've trained him not to be a butthead. They've trained him to obey, right? And it's good. And as they trained their dog, they used, they used praise, they used discipline, they used treats, they used all these tools to their advantage. And the result is they have an obedient dog, but he's a loving dog. He's a full-spirited dog. He still has a, a good personality about him. Thank you. I sure appreciate that. The, the second group, second friend of ours, man, this is one of those things that's it, it kind of, man, it makes me feel terrible inside. Because when they yell after their dog, the dog cowers in fear. Their dog cowers in fear because they were trained differently. That dog obeys out of fear, not out of love. And there's a huge difference between the two. Because that dog, it's trained, but it's come at a great cost. That dog has lost his heart. That dog is a spiritless dog who might be obedient, but he's not all that he could have been because of how it was raised. This is where, as parents, we have to understand, like, we don't have to negatively motivate our children. Listen, I know some of us are growing up and you're like, well, but that's how I was raised. That's how mom and dad raised me. It was a tense and difficult situation. I, I obeyed out of fear. Listen, listen, even if that was the way that you were raised, you don't have to negatively motivate your children in the same way. I would say that a, a Christian home, a godly home, is a home that's filled with grace and mercy and fun. And in the middle of that, godly parents figure out how to nurture and disciple and shape their children in a way that does not cause their children to lose heart. That does not exasperate their kids. Does that make sense? And again, as we, as we look at this, uh, parents do not exasperate your children. I'm going to be careful not to tell you, here's all the things you have to do. Here's all the things you have to do to, to do this because 
Ultimately, I want you to be able to say, man, what does this look like for us? I want you to sit down with your spouse and say, what does it look like for us to to create this this grace-filled home that we don't exasperate our kids, but we still have these things of obedience and discipline and boundaries in place. And so what I want to do is I want to to give you uh, maybe some ideas that you can begin to wrestle with to help you understand what it looks like for us to, to raise our kids in a way that does not exasperate them, that does not cause our kids to lose heart. Uh, five things that we'll look at. Uh, number one, parents, you've got to be present. If you're not going to exasperate your kids, you're going to raise them up in a way that, they would, that you would nurture obedience. You have to be present. Because here's the crazy thing is, like the time that our kids need us the most for many of us, is the same time that our career makes the biggest demands on our time and our energy and our life. It's just the way it works, right? And so it's easy for us to begin to ra- rationalize and say, well, well, I've got to go and I've got to build this business. I've got to perform. I've got to achieve. I've got to move up the ladder. And we rationalize and say, well, if I work harder, then I'll have a little bit more money and have a little bit more resources. And I'll just give my kids quality time, right? I'll just give them good quality time. Listen, there's no such thing as quality time apart from quantity time, right? I don't know if you've heard this guy, uh, Bob Pierce. Bob Pierce was a guy who founded World Vision, which is a a, a godly organization that meets the needs of the poorest people all across the world, okay? Bob Pierce was a guy who said, man, God's given me this great ministry. He's given me this great heart, this great passion, and he spent, again, that, that core time when he had kids, he would spend 10 months of the year out of the country. 10 months of the year. There's only 12 months. Like, that's a tremendous amount of time. And he said, you know what? Man, God's given me this ministry. God's given me this opportunity. Uh, you know, God will bless the rest of the time that I'm there. You know what ended up happening for him? After all that time of serving the Lord, man, his wife left him. She divorced him. He had one daughter who committed suicide. His second daughter, she left the faith with all of these emotional issues and was able, praise the Lord, to come back to it. But created these, he created these deep wounds in his family because he wasn't present, because he wasn't around. You know what this means? Listen, if you're a dad in here, let me tell you what your workday looks like, okay? Your workday begins as soon as your children and family wake up in the morning. And your workday, you don't get off until everybody's in bed late at night. That block of time that your family is awake, that is your workday. And that means that when you've got that 10-minute commute, that 15-minute commute from the office back to home at the end of the day, that you take that time to prepare your heart, to prepare your mind. That when you get home, your job isn't over. When you get home, your job is to sit on the floor and play with your kids and laugh with them and engage with them. And your job when you get home is to serve your wife and help your wife. And that your time, it starts when everybody else has gone to bed. That is when your time begins, is after everyone else goes to bed. Because here's what happens. If you have in your mind, if you have in your mind, hey, I've worked my eight to five. I'm done for the day. I'm going to come home and dinner's going to be ready. My wife's going to have it all nice out on the table. And then she's going to let me sit in the lazy boy. And I'm going to put the football game on. And I'm going to watch the football game and maybe fall asleep. And, And then all the kids will stay out of my way. Like if that is your mentality if that's in your mind the reality is oftentimes you're going to come home and it's going to look like a tornado went through your living room 
and there's a mess everywhere. And your wife, she's just trying to figure out what's for dinner. She hasn't got dinner ready. She's trying to figure out. And she keeps yelling at the kids, get out of the pantry. Stop eating Cheetos. And you're sitting here saying, what happened to my nice day? And you begin to lose it because your expectation isn't met. And when you begin to lose it, you're going to exasperate everybody around you. Because you don't realize that those kids have been in the pantry all day. Those kids have gained 10 pounds from all them Cheetos they've been eating all day long. And your wife's just trying to say, I want to make dinner so you have a good meal for the rest of the day. I know, men, let me just say this. Some of us are sitting here saying, well, what about me? Where's, where's my time? Where do I get my time? Listen, if you wanted to be a narcissist, you shouldn't have gotten married. You shouldn't have had kids, right? Like that's just truth. There's a time and a place for you to have that time away. And let me tell you what, if you engage your wife and your family like this, if you come home and realize my job isn't over and you serve and love your family, that those times that you do ask your wife, hey, I'd really like to watch the game or do whatever. Man, your wife's going to be gracious to it because you are so present everywhere else. She's going to want you to take that time and enjoy that. You know, one of those things that, that, when your kids are younger, and I remember hearing this for myself, when people would say, when your kids are younger, oh, it goes so fast. And I was like, no, it doesn't. Like, these days are long. You've got tantrums, and you've got sleepless nights, and all these other things. Listen, if you've got younger kids, you ask someone whose kids are gone. You ask someone whose kids have gone off to college. And they're going to tell you, those babies grow fast. Poor into them while you have them. Because I can promise you, I, man, you guys know I love the Seahawks. They're God's team. <laughs> but I promise you that that investment in your kids is going to be better than the 2019 Seahawks season. It'll be better than any season the Seahawks can put together by you taking that time to invest in your family. Take Seahawks out and put whatever it is. It will be worth the investment in your family. Second thing, parents, if we're not going to exasperate our kids, but nurture obedience in them, we have to be careful with our volume. You got to be careful. How many of you had a parent who was a screamer growing up, who was a yeller? They just yelled and yelled and yelled. Listen, I had one of those growing up, and I hated it. Like, like my mom, she would yell and yell, and it would never get through to me. It would never be effective. Because you know what happens when a parent starts raising their voice? As the parent's voice goes up, so does the kid's voice go up, right? And when you're both yelling at the top of your lungs, I don't think that's a very productive conversation. I don't think anybody is listening. I'm guessing it's not very intelligent or sane at the same time, right? In fact, I remember this. Like, I, I told myself I'm not going to be a yeller when I have kids. I remember what it did for my mom, and, and I wasn't going to be a yeller. And there was this one day, and again, I'll, I'll confess there was a day that I wanted time for myself. And the kids were off doing something. And I'm like, great, you guys be quiet. I want my time for me. And uh, the kids started making a mess and making a noise. And I remember going up and, and, and losing it on my kids and just yelling. I remember looking at their eyes and seeing the fear in their eyes. Man, it is still something that, that, that hurts me today. Man, we got to be careful with our volume. Got to be careful with our volume because th that yelling will exasperate our kids like nothing else. Got to be so careful with your volume. Number three, parents, if you're going to culture uh, 
obedience in your kids, you've got to take ownership when you are the one to blame, right? Parents, you're not going to be perfect. None of us are perfect, right? And so there are times when I have to sit at the edge of the bed and I have to say to my kids, listen, guys, what you did was not right, but I handled this wrong. I handled this wrong. It's not okay for me to talk to you like that. It's not okay for me to raise my voice. I didn't mean what I said. Would you forgive me? My kids need to hear me say, I need Jesus just as much as you do. And you have to be willing to to be humble enough. Again, this is where the maturity is, is shown in humility. You have to have the humility to take ownership when you are the one to blame. You're going to teach your kids this is what it looks like to depend on Christ, to, to live the gospel out, to recognize none of us have reached perfection. We are all in need of grace and repentance and forgiveness. And I would say, somewhere along the way, I don't know who it was, some psychologist said, oh, you, know, you, you can't show weakness in front of your kids. You can't show weakness. Listen, that's a lie straight from the depths of hell. That is a lie. Like there is no greater way for you to show love than when you can show that kind of weakness to your children. That that becomes a powerful example of, of love when you can say, listen, dad was wrong. And I'm sorry for this. Would you forgive me? In fact, I would say that you could teach more to your children by you taking ownership for your failures than you ever can by raising your voice and trying to get anything else across that way. Number four, number four, you have to, we have to have wisdom as we discipline. Listen, I think discipline is absolutely necessary. It is absolutely necessary. Parents, if you aren't showing your, your, your children discipline, you are not showing them love. But with that said, it is possible for us to have this overbearing discipline that completely crushes and exasperates our kids and causes them to lose heart. And that's the difference between the two dogs. You've got this, this spirit-filled dog who's obedient but loving life, and you've got this dog who lives by fear. So here's, here's a couple ideas on, on wisdom in your discipline. Number one, make sure the punishment fits the crime. Right? Anybody ever been in that situation? Like for me, with my kids, like, like you can wreck the car, I'm cool. You can burn the house down, I'm cool. But the moment you disrespect me, Man, there's an unhealthy escalation to that. You start throwing words at me, man, my, my tension just rises and rises, and I'm like, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, you want to disrespect me? Well, here's your discipline. You can't breathe for three days. Suck it up. You're done. Like, that's my unhealthy escalation. We all have whatever that is. When you are disciplining, my kids are laughing because they know it's true. When you are disciplining, make sure the punishment fits the crime. Second thing about discipline, again, we have to be able to discern the difference between being defiant and being immature. There's a big difference between the two. I mean, if you've got a three-year-old who throws a cup of juice across the, the, across the room, that's very different than a three-year-old who just spills it on the table. There's a difference between being disobedient. There's a difference between disobedient and just being immature. You have to be able to, to tell the difference between the two, because defiance defiance needs to be dealt with. It needs to be taught. We don't tolerate defiance. But there's these things I do that are there's things our kids do that is just immaturity, and the goal isn't to, the goal isn't to to uh, 
discipline for that. The goal is to teach them how to grow up, how to begin to be more mature. Listen, this may be controversial, but I would say that discipline should be child-specific. Man, this is where our kids are different. Your kids are different. You've got one kid that has this personality, another one that has the other one, and you think, well, I'm just going to be consistent with all of the kids. Listen, all the kids are not clones. We're not raising clones. And so this is where, and, and the, man, I, I get this. This is confusing for kids. Kids don't understand it. Well, why do you treat them different than you treat me? Because they're a different personality. You are not your brother. You are not your sister. You are you. And I'm shaping you the way that I feel God has called me to shape you. And I'm shaping them the way that they need to be shaped as well. I would also say wisdom and discipline. Your discipline needs to be consistent. It needs to be consistent. Listen, I'm not saying you've got to have thousands of rules. Because if you have thousands of rules, kids will never be able to comprehend all of that. But here's what you do. You pick what's important. You pick the important rules and say, listen, this is the rule and this is the consequence. And the more consistent you can be for that rule, the better it is for your children. Because that inconsistency, where sometimes I discipline this and sometimes I don't, the inconsistency works against what you're trying to accomplish. It exasperates the children. So we've got to have wisdom in our discipline. And here's, here's number five. If we're going to nurture obedience for our children. And not exasperate them. You've got to fill your home with grace and love. You've got to fill your home with grace and love and not criticism. Right? Because children can be crushed under constant criticism. That when you have a parent who is constantly criticizing, there's no safety in that home. There's no security in that home. Your kids feel like, man, I can never measure up because everything I do is wrong. And I'm always going to get picked on because I'm not doing everything just right. In fact, uh, there's a story about, about the guy named John Newton. John Newton is this old dead guy. He wrote uh, the, the amazing hymn. <laughs> Sorry, he is. He wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. Wrote this beautiful hymn, right? And, and when you look at his life, like he experienced a pretty uh, horrendous life before he came to Christ. And this is what John Newton said. He said, I know my father loved me, but he did not seem to wish for me to be able to see it. He didn't want me to see that he loved me. And how he interacted with me. In fact, I, this might be the key idea for this entire message. That if we want to nurture obedience in our children. That it is nurtured in love and praise. That if we're going to nurture this in our kids and not exasperate them. And, and nurture obedience in them. It has to be nurtured in love and praise. So here's, here's what I would encourage you to do. Every one of you. Uh, take a... Take a evaluation of your life this week. Go through a day and think about those close relationships. Think about your spouse, your interactions with your spouse. Think about your interactions with your children. Think about your interactions at work. Think about those close interactions. And I want you to count. I want you to count. How many, how many positive interactions do you have with them versus how many critical or negative interactions do you have in those relationships? I encourage you, take account. Take a little notepad with you. Negative, positive. Count how many negative comments you make and how many positive comments you make. How many times you're getting on them, you're correcting them, you're disciplining them, versus how many times you are praising and loving them. There's some research that was put out by the Gottman Institute that re, re, uh, uh, does research on relationships. And they said for a happy and healthy family, 
that the positive to critical ratio is supposed to be five positive comments to every one negative comment. Five positive comments to every critical comment. That is that ratio that allows people to flourish, allows them to be safe and secure in who God has established them to be. You're, well, some of you are, well, I'm not sure I believe that. Listen, they did this even in workplaces. And they said, listen, let's do some research in workplaces. The most productive teams, the most effective companies, their positive to negative ratio was six to one, even greater. Listen, if we want to create uh, the, this culture of obedience and this culture of, of safety and security in our families and in our workplaces and our marriages, listen, we've got to allow love and praise and grace to be the things that, 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 that exudes out of our homes. In fact, I love this. Thinking about this, Moses. Moses, you know, the guy that led the Israelites across the Red Sea. He leads the, the, the Israelites across the Red Sea. And he says, to, he says to God in Exodus 33, he says, God, would you show yourself to me? Again, this is God. This is the, the, the great God. And Moses is like, I want to see who you are. I want to know who you are. And this is what God reveals about him. And this is repeated all throughout the, 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 the Bible. Exodus chapter 34 says, The Lord passed before him and said to him, The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is what God said. This is what's going to define me. That I am a God that is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Listen, wouldn't it be great if our families knew that to be about us? Not that we're the one that's going to nitpick everything they do. Not that we're known by our discipline. Discipline is a necessary part of it. That we'd be known by being people who are merciful and gracious and slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We get to this point of the sermon. And I know some of us are sitting in our chairs thinking, man, I've got to get better at this. Man, there's so many things I need to improve. I mean... Probably all of us are in that situation. But listen, if that's all you hear today, I think you'd miss the fact that God has placed you in these relationships. That God has given you a marriage. That God has given you children. That God has put you in a workplace. So you might see your failures. And you might see over and over and over again. Not that you would drive you to despair, but it would drive you to the grace and mercy that God has offered through Jesus Christ. That we would understand that we don't be better parents by trying harder. We be better parents by, by diving deeper into God. But by knowing him deeper and allowing him to continue to change us from the inside out. Not that we try harder, but that we believe better. And that by believing better, God redeems those hard and broken things inside of our heart and changes us. And gives us the ability to put on these characteristics of compassion and kindness and, and, and forgiveness and, and meekness and humility and all these other characteristics. That as, we, as we, we go deeper into God, as we know his word deeper, as we worship him better, that God begins to redeem our broken parts and allow our hearts to change. And that then plays out in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces. Listen, parents. My goal isn't for you to walk out of here today and say, man, I got to try harder this week. My goal is that you would drop to your knees and say, God, I need you. My goal is that you would recognize, man, God, I need you in this relationship. I need you where I'm at. That maybe today you might even come to God and say, God, I just need to confess. 
I need to confess that maybe I have been exasperating my kids. I've been inconsistent with my discipline. I've been critical. I haven't created a home of love and grace. That you would just put it out there and say, God, I need to confess. Maybe that for you children. Man, maybe there's for you, there's that part where you need to begin to take some ownership of your disobedience, of repenting. Because I'll tell you what, children, coming from a parent, there's a tremendous amount of weight that carries when you come and apologize and seek repentance. When you take ownership, man, I've been wrong here. There's a ton of grace and love and compassion that goes when you acknowledge that. I know some of you are sitting here like, well, I'm a single. I don't, I don't have kids. I don't have a spouse. Some of you are saying, well, we're married and we don't have kids yet. Listen, what are you cultivating in, in your heart? What are you cultivating in your life regarding the grace of God? What is leading you to grow deeper into the gospel message? Because the decisions you make today will determine the kind of parent you're going to be tomorrow. So that if and when God blesses you with children, that you have allowed the grace of God and the mercy of God and the grace of the gospel to take root in your heart and eventually in your home. So that way you are prepared for that. That you've already created a home of grace and love and mercy. So that when God blesses you with kids and they're in your home, they enter into that kind of home where it is found of grace and mercy and love. It's necessary. Listen, you, all of us, have you been able to extend grace to your parents for their shortcomings and failures? Maybe that's a part of this process. Is that we look at our parents and and we come to the place where we can extend grace and forgiveness and acknowledge that perhaps we can see maybe our parents did the best they could with with where they were, with what they had no longer hold it against them for all their failures. Listen, I know some of you are sitting here and you're like, man, I'm great. My kids are gone. Woohoo! I'm off the hook here. You're not. And I'm not just talking about grandbabies. Like you have a role in this church. You have a role in the church to encourage and speak life into young men and women. You have a role to speak life into to newlyweds, into young parents. That you can speak life into them because you've been there. You've been through those toddler days where it feels like you're never going to get out of them. You can be there and say, man, you do survive. It takes 15 years, but you will recover. You can speak life into them, maybe in a way that one of their peers can't. That you have a role yourself to engage and love and encourage those who are younger than you. And I'll tell you what, that's what the church desperately needs desperately needs you who are a little bit older, a little bit more mature to walk alongside those of us that are younger, those of us that are struggling through it, to hold our hand and say, you know what? You're going to get through it. You will get through it. All of this is meant, again, not to tell us to try harder. It's meant to point us back to who God is that we don't become a better parent by trying harder. It all comes down to us diving deeper into who God is and allowing God to change our heart from the inside out. That our marriages, our families, our workplaces, they become better when we understand our role. 
We allow God to work through us, to change us. We pray for you.